0: Hi, Thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again, or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. Most gracious God, we ask that as the word is proclaimed in sacrament, in scripture, in sermon, in song, that it is your word for our lives that we hear, and hearing believe, and believing obey. Amen. I'll read the passage from Galatians chapter 5 beginning with verse 16. Listen for the word of God. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other and prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious, fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competed against one another, envying one another. The word of the Lord. A Boy Scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. That is called the Boy Scout Law, but sounds like the Boy Scout List. It's a list of attributes that describe the ideal scout, the ideal scout. I mean, honestly, the list has to be aspirational since those first describing themselves in that way are 11-year-old boys and now 11-year-old girls as well. I was a barefoot, 11-year-old Alabama boy who had the run of the neighborhood when I first memorized and recited that list, and you can bet I wasn't living up to everything I said I was, and you can begin with the word clean. (laughs) I want to talk about a hymn that is not meant to be aspirational, for it gives a list that describes the ideal God. I messed up when I chose hymns for this service Because I wanted us to sing as our opening hymn, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. Only when it came time to give that information to Andrea Boone, I forgot I had made this decision. And it's too bad because that hymn is a lot of fun to sing. It may not be as popular a worship starter as Holy, 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 or a mighty fortress is our God. But Presbyterians who love getting worship going with some power and zip, never mind singing this one. I tell you what. Let's sing it now. Open your glory to God hymnals to number 12. I have learned that this hymn is most fun to sing when a crowd sings it with gusto. The tune is easy to follow and thus makes even a poor singer like me feel like I'm singing in some great church choir. Let's sing the first verse listening for the answers to this question. Who is this God we have come to worship? Who is God, I asked, and you just answered that question by singing, God is immortal and invisible, only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Really? Tell me more. Well, you did. Well, God is unresting, unhasting, and silent as light. God is not wanting nor wasting, but rulest in might. It didn't feel right singing that hymn while sitting down, did it? I mean, that hymn makes you want to stand up, rise up toward the mountain peaks and clouds that are in the lyrics, standing, stretching up toward heaven, up, up, up from all this mess and sin and decay from imperfection, up, up, up toward the God who is too high to reach. For that's the point of the hymn, isn't it? I mean, we can stand and sing, but we can't ascend And see, the attributes the hymn uses to describe God describes the indescribable, immortal, invisible, inaccessible, pure light. The hymn humbles us by reminding us that we are mortals who in the span of a lifetime flourish with youth and then wither with age, but God never changes. I love the hymn but it appeals more to my philosophy major self than my seminary trained self. It leans platonic. And by that, I mean the text reflects Plato's insistence that anything divine must be unspoiled by anything that is human or of the world. God, to be God, must be perfect, must be pure, pristine, free of the smell and stain of human sin and human flaws. That is why I think that this hymn, which makes us want to stand up, is a hymn that cannot stand alone. For what is described is a God that we cannot hold, that's true, but doesn't give us a strong sense that we worship a God who holds us. We sing of a God frozen in unchanging perfection, And it's hard to imagine being seen and understood in our sin and in our need to grow. This is not a hymn that promises a spirit to move us away from our regret and toward our being forgiven or our need to forgive others. Move us toward necessary change. Maybe move us from the valley we might find ourselves in, a spirit that will guide us to a better place. I don't mean to say that the hymn is wrong or that the hymn is not biblical. It certainly is biblical. I mean, it makes one of the Bible's first points and most repeated points. At the beginning of Genesis, we are told, and we're told this over and over again, all the way through to Revelation, that God is beyond our sight, beyond our reach, beyond our defining, beyond our control. God is the voice of the bush that burns but is not consumed. The God who refuses to be named at the bush except to be called something like being or presence. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, says Isaiah on behalf of God. And poor Job, suffering calamities that are not his fault, asking God over and over again, please be more transparent. Tell me why. And he finally is given an audience, but not an answer. He is given only a glimpse of all that God can see from the heavens, a glimpse that reminds him that reality simply doesn't begin and end with Job. And Job comes away from that vision without answers, only with all. The immortal, invisible, God only wise really is more a hymn of all than a hymn of praise. But once we realize that before God, our silence is more eloquent than our words, once we realize that God is beyond our sight and certainly beyond our descriptions and most certainly beyond our control, what then? I mean, even if true faith is not about defining God, it is about living together as God would want us to live, right? Because it's simply not enough to say that God is a mystery. I mean, I say that all the time because guess what? God is a mystery. But there's far too much potential to do great harm or great good in this world to be happy with this shoulder shrugging, whatever works kind of faith. Here are some examples of today's shoulder shrugging, God is too far out there, whatever works kind of faith. It's popular these days to say that since God is a mystery, let's accept that everyone has a right to believe in whatever God makes sense to them. There are many paths to God, and as long as no one is being harmed, who is to say that one spiritual path is better than another's? Here's another one. God is the unmoved mover, the one who winds up the clock of creation and then sits back and watches it tick, tick, tick. Tick right on through black holes and dinosaurs dying and species evolving and civilizations rising and falling. Here's another one. Some simply can't talk themselves out of believing there's a God. Their mind tells them, well, there can't be a world without a maker, a creation without a creator, And their hearts tell them that if faith was good enough for their parents and grandparents who they love, well, then it's good enough for them. So if Christian, they'll come to church for Christmas and Easter, for funerals and weddings, and they'll have the children baptized. But when it comes to daily life in the house or on the streets or on social media or in their participation in community and national life, their faith really doesn't come much into play. Now, all three of those kind of popular views could sing of a God who is out there, unknowable, unreachable, and as far as their experience in life, uninvolved. But while these faiths are indulgent and inclusive, they're really not much of help in the world. For once the point is made that we can't define God, a question remains, how are we going to live together? At least that's the Bible's perspective. From the Bible's perspective, too much is at stake to shrug our shoulders about God. Because what is at stake is human dignity and justice and compassion among us and care of this creation that we've been charged to help take care of. The Bible makes the repeated point that God is beyond our reach, but we're not out of God's reach. We who are created are also called to live in a way together that has been shown to us through Israel's story and Jesus' life and other narratives out there in the world. I suggest to you that though we can't describe God, we can describe what is of God, what is godly. While we cannot describe God as some human in the heavens, we can gain insight from Scripture what God expects of humans here on earth. And I'm gonna call on Paul, the author of our New Testament passage from Galatians to help us. And to help us understand Paul, I'm going to call on a Jewish rabbi. Rabbi Harold Shawwhites died recently, but I think he would be pleased being asked as a Jew to help us understand how to be more authentically Christian. This California rabbi began an organization with a name that I cannot pronounce. What this Jewish organization does is identify Gentiles around the world who demonstrated simple goodness in their lives by taking care of others and who now find themselves in need. Today, through this Jewish organization, there are 805 Gentiles in 23 countries who are being cared for by Jews as a way of saying, thank you for demonstrating simple goodness. A way of saying, we can't see God, but we see God in you. I think that's an amazing statement. We can't see God, but we can see God in you. That is almost a paraphrase of what is said about Jesus in the first chapter of the gospel of John. No one has ever seen God, John tells us, but in God's only son, who is close to the father's heart, he has made him known. We may not be able to describe God in heaven, but we can describe something to what is godly in the words, life, and death of Jesus. What is godly in human life together? Rabbi Shalweis is so convinced that we cannot see God that he won't even say that God is just or God is merciful or God is compassion. I mean, I can find ways still to say those things, but he won't. But what that rabbi did say is that based on our long history with God, we do know that as far as being human, God expects justice and mercy and compassion. And that's what Paul is telling us in our passage from Galatians. We who are followers of the God we encounter in Jesus Christ should at least agree on some things that we say about ourselves and how we treat each other after we have come to know Israel's whole story and after we have come to know Jesus, some behaviors simply do not uh, smell right. We can say that lying is not of God, that selfish behavior is not of God, remaining willfully ignorant of the needs of others Treating others as objects or as a means to our selfish ends, whether for sex or wealth or power, is not of God. Paul says it is of the flesh, which is confusing. Let's just say that whatever debates we might have about God, there should be less debate about ugly and divisive and violent behavior Anything that unnecessarily destroys the community or degrades human dignity, whatever advantages such behaviors bring, they're not of God. Now, Paul is not being the philosopher here, talking theoretically in the hopes that one day, you know, some people in Roanoke, Virginia, might end up reading what I write and learn a thing or two. No, he's talking to specific communities and he's telling them to behave. He is talking to members of Galatian churches because he finds some of the ways that they deal with each other is simply to be unacceptable. So much controversy among them, so much strife. He sees a kind of self-righteous competition with the aim of one side winning and the other side not only losing, but being humiliated. We don't know all that was stirring the Galatians up and I won't go into all that we do know, but it involves sex, it involves money, And it involves very spirited debates about what rules to follow in order to be a Christian, rules about circumcision and diet and worship. And if we've read Paul's letters, we know that he has views on these issues and he expresses them in his letters. I mean, don't even get him started on circumcision unless you have a lot of time on your hands. Just like you don't need to get all of us started on certain issues unless you have a lot of time on your hands. But though Paul is passionate about a lot of issues and that he thinks they're very important, he cuts to the chase in our passage. He says, listen to me. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you have the better answers within your family or in community debates. If you are unkind to each other, you're not of God. If you are lying, you are not of God. If you are arrogant or purposefully hurtful or divisive only in order to win, you are not of God. It is not in the spirit of God to be untruthful, to hate, to hurt others, to destroy the community so only one part of it can have all that it wants. I say this to couples in premarital counseling. I tell them that they need to work on disagreeing well. They need to work on arguing well. I tell them that they need to be careful because even if one of them is right about a particular thing, if they win in a way that degrades and shows disrespect, they're going to have bigger issues in their marriage than what they were arguing about. After talking about what is not of God, Paul goes on to talk about what is of God. And the phrase he uses is of the spirit. And he gives a list of attributes that may not be exhaustive for all Christians everywhere in every moment, in every age, but is a list that those Galatians need to hear. What is of the Spirit, he says, is love, joy, peace, and patience with each other, and kindness toward each other, and generosity, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Gifts of the spirit that protect relationships, that heal relational wounds, that allow people who are different and at odds to remain in the same families and communities. Gifts that bring about the compromises and forbearance that families and communities need to make it through the hard and thorny times without falling apart. Paul may not be describing God but he's being pretty explicit about what God expects of the Galatian Christians. He hasn't come up with all this stuff by ascending to the heavens, but by observing what happens when God comes among us on earth and among us through Jesus. A faith without this kind of moral clarity about how we treat each other is not a faith that can heal the world no matter how intellectually satisfying. I think that rude and abusive ways of treating each other is becoming acceptable in our culture, or at least more acceptable, though thank God not that I've noticed within this church. And what Paul is reminding us is something that we pretty much already know, which I suspect that the Galatian Christians already knew. We who bear the name of Jesus Christ have a standard by which we can begin to judge what is and is not Of God, trolling others for the fun of upsetting them. Is that of God? Being kind when others are being cruel. Of God, delighting in the ways of war instead of peace. Of God, telling the truth when others are getting away with lying. Of God, life can be difficult. And there are complex and thorny problems we have to face in our life together. We have to work stuff out. We will have debates about spending money and time at home, issues about love and affection. And out in the community, we'll have debates about crime and poverty and welfare or guns and taxes and health care. And, you know, some of the solutions and compromises we come up with won't work. Probably none of them will ever completely work. It's such a mess sometimes. But in the middle of it all, Paul left us with this cut to the chase reminder. There are ways that we treat each other in the middle of it all that are of God and ways that are not. Though his list in Galatians are not exhaustive. It wouldn't harm us to follow the example of the scouts and memorize them and live them. Second Presbyterian Finding Direction by Following Jesus